from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Washington Post, I'm Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 7th. Today, the future of a company blamed for helping fuel the opioid crisis, why Republicans feel bound to President Trump, and espionage charges in Silicon Valley. Two months ago, Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy. Since then, there's been a whole lot of news about what the company and its owners, the Sackler family, have been doing to manage the financial fallout. So Purdue Pharma has a really interesting and unique place in the history of the pharmaceutical business. Chris Rowland covers the business of healthcare for The Post. The origins of the company are in from the early 50s when three brothers from Brooklyn, who had trained as physicians, uh, psychiatrists, bought a drug company called Purdue Frederick, and it sold sort of, you know, mundane, everyday items like earwax remover and laxatives. Then, in 1996, Purdue released a blockbuster opioid called OxyContin. And what was new and interesting about OxyContin was that Purdue Pharma backed it with a big sales force and a really big marketing push aimed at doctors to try to accept the idea that opioid medication, poppy-derived medicine, which has always been seen as highly addictive, could actually be safely given to people for routine pain. They designed the drug specifically to be time-released to prevent it from being addictive. And at the time, the FDA agreed with that claim. What was not foreseen by Purdue Pharma and the FDA was that people would start crushing it up and either snorting it or injecting it, and which you know led to a lot of addiction very quickly. As a result, Purdue Pharma was widely blamed for helping fuel the opioid epidemic. So Purdue is only one of many drug companies that are being sued for their alleged contribution to fueling the opioid epidemic. That's absolutely correct. A number of other drug manufacturers have also been sued. The thing about Purdue is that it's a relatively small company in the you know pantheon of drug companies. And so their annual sales do not come close to being able to approach what would satisfy this number of plaintiffs. Even if only 10% of these plaintiffs won, it would still probably wipe out the company. So they proactively have gone into bankruptcy with a proposed settlement. And in that proposed settlement, the, the fact that they're filing for bankruptcy, what does that mean for the company? So what they've done is they've proposed a very novel solution, which is to reinvent Purdue Pharma as a public trust that would have as its primary mission in its charter, written into its charter, to help alleviate the opioid epidemic. So here's a company that is accused of helping fuel the epidemic, proposing to, you know, sort of resurrect itself and change into a, you know, whole new public trust that would create anti-addiction drugs as well as overdose rescue drugs that could be distributed free throughout the country. Now, some people say that this is you know, an effort by the family and by Purdue to sort of improve the narrative of their legacy. But, you know, Purdue and the Sackler family say they are committed to any addiction efforts. And in fact, in a statement to the Post, representatives for the family and Purdue Pharma say they were, quote, disappointed by the counterproductive rhetoric of those more interested in casting aspersions than achieving real solutions. Interesting, because I think that you could look at what they're doing with this company and say, you know, wow, that's that's really generous. The fact that they have made all of this money from 
from the sales of OxyContin and then that they're now going to use this money to help people, to get people off of opioid addiction, that that is putting some good into the world. I think so. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, a number of states have signed on to the settlement and they see this as, you know, a novel and interesting concept. Um, The reason that it's controversial is because the settlement has, you know, a number of moving parts. So some of it is quite attractive and other parts of it are more controversial. And that's why you're seeing a very equal split among states about whether they want to accept the settlement or not. So around 23 states have signed on and are supportive Another 24 or 25, depending on you count, how you count Arizona, because they're sort of on the fence, are opposed. The reason that the opposition is there is because they don't feel like this money is enough. It does not meet their obligation, number one. But two, it does not represent justice. I spoke to one of these attorneys general who are upset about this settlement and are opposing it, William Tong of Connecticut. Here's what I know. They've done billions and billions in damage to the people of Connecticut and the other states in this country. Even though the Sacklers are also pledging another $3 billion that they would gain from family coffers from selling some affiliated overseas companies into this settlement. $3 billion is cents on the dollar when compared to what they've done and what they're responsible for and the money they've taken out. The company itself is worth anywhere between, you know, $3 to $5 billion, and that includes cash on hand, the future sales of, you know, drugs, including OxyContin. And then Purdue Pharma has put a value of $4.4 billion on these anti-addiction and overdose drugs that they would distribute for free. That number is controversial. A number of people say it's inflated, and they don't think that that number is actually realistic. So when you talk about the overall package, you know, some states say, yes, this is a, a good deal. Other states are saying, this is not enough money. And I think everyone- Even if it's billions of dollars? Yeah, even if it's billions of dollars. And because one of the reasons is that, you know, and even people who support the settlement acknowledge that this doesn't go anywhere near filling the need and the damage that's been caused by the opioid epidemic in states across the country. While OxyContin was proving to be a hugely successful drug and and Purdue Pharma was making a lot of money, the Sackler family also took money out of the company. Is there a concern about that and how that plays into the current role of, of this potential public trust? The family's quite private. You know, it's a privately held company and they do not release a lot of data, but the states have investigated and they have filed a number of lawsuits where they have alleged that Purdue Pharma brought in around $35 billion in all from sales of OxyContin. But this was really their main product. It was, you know, between 80 and 90% of all their sales. And so the allegation is of this $35 billion, the family themselves, starting around 2008, began taking billions out of the company. And the estimates are as much as $13 billion was taken out by the family in these profits. And that's according to a financial consultant to Purdue Pharma. The allegation from some states is that this is what's called a fraudulent conveyance. Their allegation is that the Sackler family was taking the money out of the company, putting it in their own accounts, into their own investment vehicles, out of Purdue Pharma, as a way of protecting it from lawsuits that were inevitably coming. But, you know, the family and Purdue strenuously denied that there was anything improper about these transfers. Interesting. So what these attorneys general are alleging is that the Sackler family pulled this money out of the company because they were worried that the company might eventually get mired in lawsuits 
potentially for their role in the opioid epidemic. Now, what the Sacklers say is that they did not know that this wave of litigation was coming and that these were normal transfers of money, perfectly legal, and that at the time there was a debate within the company about whether or not they should try to diversify within the company and try to create new drugs to invest and create new kinds of pharmaceutical opportunities, or if the family should take it out and diversify their holdings privately throughout other investment vehicles, companies, investments. So it does appear from everything that's been filed in court and what's been written about Purdue Pharma is that they opted for the latter. And why is that significant? It's significant because it creates a lingering question over the entire bankruptcy about whether or not the $3 billion that the Sacklers want to put into the settlement is sufficient. The family's worth, their estimated worth of the family is anywhere between you know 12 to $14 billion, according to Forbes magazine. And so a number of attorneys general who are rejecting the settlement say that's not enough money. Where the money went that they took out of the company you know, in the last 10 years is pertinent to the bankruptcy because the attorneys general want to know where did it go and where is it sitting now. So for the attorneys general who have decided to accept this deal, why are they doing it even if there are all these other allegations about whether what is being offered by Purdue and the Sackler family is actually enough? The problem with having this unwieldy explosion of 2,600 lawsuits or more against a company is that to try to satisfy all these plaintiffs and to try to adjudicate all that through a number of courts, it's going to just absorb an extremely high amount of money in litigation costs. So a lot of these states are looking at this as saying, you know, this is a pretty good settlement. We've got the Sacklers putting in at least $3 billion, which is not an insignificant sum by any standard. And, you know, Purdue Pharma is going to be recreated into this, you know, really a force of good for the nation. Let's just take this, and it's probably the best deal we can get. Chris Rowland covers the business of healthcare for The Post. So I think that throughout Trump's presidency, there has been a question that a lot of Democrats, a lot of liberals perhaps ask about why it is that Republican lawmakers don't just en masse say no to Trump. We still don't see Republicans in the Senate or many in the House who are willing to step out and say the president was wrong. Why don't they just say you've gone too far? Why can't the Republicans go after Trump now? And I think we don't like what you do. We don't like what you say and reject him. Where is the line? You didn't pledge an oath to the president. When are you guys going to start standing up? And And I thought that this Francis Rooney episode was in microcosm a pretty tidy explanation for why it is that that doesn't happen. I'm Griff Whitty, and I'm a national correspondent for The Post. So who is Representative Francis Rooney? 
Francis Rooney, member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, friend of the show who is with us uh, now. Good to see you, sir. The so Francis Rooney Washington is a two-term congressman from Florida. He's a Republican. He's a very wealthy man. He had been a Republican donor before he ran for office. And he came in as someone who was very much a Republican insider and hadn't been someone that you would necessarily see as a rebel. But what was interesting was a few weeks ago, amid this testimony that we're hearing from various people testifying about Ukraine. Mick Mulvaney laid out a quid pro quo. What is your response? Well, yeah, whatever might have been gray and unclear before is certainly quite clear right now. He came out and said, I've been listening to this testimony and it sounds serious. We're not supposed to use government power and prestige for political gain. And it's troubling to me. Is that impeachable? Uh, I don't know. I, I want to study it some more. I want to hear the next set of testimony next and week. And he said, uh, I'm not ready to make up my mind yet about how I would ultimately vote on the impeachment of the president. But it's certainly very, very serious and troubling. So he is one of the very few Republican lawmakers who has said anything that is even approximate to the idea of being critical of the president in this or saying that maybe there is some compelling evidence that has has come forward here. Right. And and make no mistake, he did not come out and attack the president. He didn't criticize the president directly. He said, I'm interested in what I'm hearing and I haven't made my mind up yet. This is different from what most members, Republican members of Congress have been saying, which is, this is a witch hunt. Most Republicans in the House have basically stuck to Trump's line, which is that this is all a manufactured crisis, that it's the Democrats out to get Trump, and there's no there there. And what Francis Rooney was saying was, I don't know if there's a there there, but let's find out. And so then what happened after Representative Rooney said these comments? He made the comments on a Friday several weeks ago. 24 hours later on Saturday, less than 24 hours later, he comes out and says, I'm retiring from Congress. And I was interested in finding out what happened in that period between when he made his impeachment comments and when he said he was retiring from Congress. And that's why I went down to Florida. And where did you go when you went there? Francis Rooney represents an area of southwest Florida. It includes a number of coastal cities, Fort Myers, Naples. It's a very beautiful area. This is prime retirement country. This is where you go to hang out on the beach and soak up the sun. And there are golf clubs and tennis clubs and yacht clubs. It's a very well-to-do area. And it's traditionally been a, a strong Republican area. The place there where is no... Partisan elected official mm. in Lee or Collier County who is not Republican. Yeah. And and was that part of your thinking in terms of where when to I, move? When yeah. I moved from Michigan here, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and I still think that. Yeah, because, because I mean, you found your people here. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about some of the Republicans there that you interviewed. The Republican office holders that I spoke with, the people who are really veterans of Republican politics, say that Trump is fundamentally different in terms of the level of devotion he inspires. He's different from anybody. He's different from any of It was never like this for the Bushes. It was never like this for Ronald Reagan. I've never had a president that I sat and listened to him speak, like at a rally or anything, and felt like... You know, there's 25,000 people in the stadium, but he's not talking to them. He's talking to me, mm. only to me. 
So I can imagine if many of the constituents there are such passionate fans of President Trump that they probably did not take kindly to Representative Rooney's remarks, even though they were pretty moderate in what he was saying. As soon as he made those comments, there was a severe backlash. You saw on Republican Facebook pages that they were just lighting up with comments, people really lacing into the congressman. I told him he betrayed. I like felt betrayed. I end, thought he betrayed the president, the, end, the right. country, and his constituents. Mm. Why did I vote for you then? Yeah. Mm. Why did we hire you? I yeah. talked to a number of Republicans who had campaigned for both Francis Rooney and for Donald Trump. And the emotion that people reflected to me more than any other was betrayal. Even if that was his own personal feeling, Mm -hmm. he was there representing us as his constituents. That's not what he was supposed to do. We hired him to do a job, and he's not doing it. Mm. Go further than that. I spoke with one woman, Doris, who's the vice chair of the Lee County Republicans. Mm. Very, very disappointed. People are very, very disappointed. And she says that when she heard the comments of Francis Rooney, she talked to him and she told him that she thought he should resign. I called him Saturday morning. We talked for about half an hour and I told him my opinion was he should get out and let someone who will back Trump run for office because it's important that we get the president. So I wasn't surprised when he announced because he announced a couple hours later. Mm-hmm. But I was... I've and and Congressman Rooney... Was he surprised by this backlash or when he made these comments, did he know that people were not going to be happy to hear them? He says he was not surprised and he says that his decision to retire was not related to the impeachment comments. He says that when it comes to Trump, Trump, of course, famously boasted that he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and that he wouldn't lose any of his supporters. And when I asked Francis Rooney about that, he said... That's true in some parts of my district. There are people who will support Trump no matter what he does. And I asked him, is that good for the country? He said he likes it better when people think. So did you buy that when he said that he had already decided to retire when he got this backlash? I asked a lot of people about that. And there was a real division in opinion. There were some people who said, absolutely, he had gone to Washington not intending to stay forever. He had accomplished what he had intended to accomplish. He was simply ready to go. I talked to other people who said the timing is just too coincidental, that there was obviously a break here between the kind of Republican that Francis Rooney wanted to be and the kind of Republican that the voters, or at least the Republican primary voters of Southwest Florida want, and Rooney was out of step. Rooney says that he didn't resign as a result of his impeachment comments. He says that he had accomplished what he had wanted to accomplish in Washington. He served two terms. He never intended to stay for life. And he has other things that he wants to do. But still, if the backlash to a Republican politician is this intense, Just because a lawmaker said that they're curious to see more information and evidence from the impeachment inquiry, then what does that say for other Republican lawmakers who are also in the position of trying to figure out how and if they are going to defend the president? We've seen this pattern repeated again and again across Trump's presidency, where Republicans who dare to step out, whether it's Jeff Flake, whether it's Mitt Romney, when they do, they do it at their peril. 
they get absolutely battered both by Trump and now Trump doesn't necessarily even have to say anything. He doesn't have to tweet against those who dare step out of line because his supporters, they'll enforce this on his behalf. From your reporting, do you get the sense that from average Republican voters, people who had voted for President Trump in 2016, that they are by and large continuing to be very supportive of him, even though these accusations have been brought against him? It's not even though, it's almost because of. You've seen a change in the last month or so in impeachment poll numbers among Democrats, where they're significantly more in favor than they used to be. Republicans are almost exactly where they were a couple months ago, which is to say there are very, very few Republicans who are supporting impeachment, only about one in 10. Anyone who thought that Trump's base was cracking over these impeachment allegations the evidence I saw in Southwest Florida was that it actually is is hardening up. The Republicans who I talked to said they're actually glad that Francis Rooney stepped out of line because it will give them a chance in 2020 to elect someone who will do what they want done, which is someone who will vote with the president and support the president no matter what. They see the fact that Trump is facing these accusations, the fact that he is facing this impeachment inquiry, as even more evidence that he's doing the right thing. I consider him to be our David against Goliath because he's doing such a phenomenal job. Because if Democrats are angry, if the swamp, as these Republican voters see it, is rising up against Trump, if the media doesn't like what he's done, then that's more evidence that he's on the right track, that he's doing the right thing. And look what he has to fight every single day. Impeachment, impeachment, impeachment under closed doors with nobody telling anybody. Griff Whitty is a national correspondent for The Post. And now, one more thing from national security reporter Ellen Nakashima. Twitter is an immense social media platform, and it is, in fact, so crucial in Saudi Arabia because it is basically, like one person told me, the public square for Saudi Arabia. It is where everyone goes on to argue, to debate, to make their points. And as such, it is tremendously influential. This week, two former employees of Twitter were charged with spying on behalf of Saudi Arabia. It's the first time federal prosecutors have publicly accused the country of operating spies inside the U.S. These two former employees, while they were at Twitter, were alleged to have accessed the sensitive personal information of a number of Twitter users, some of whom were prominent dissidents, critics of the Saudi government or Saudi royal family, and were thus people who the government would want to track, monitor, unmask, and perhaps silence. And there's another person who has not been charged but is implicated in the whole operation. He's a Saudi official named Badr al-Asakar. He's a close associate of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And investigators believe that he cultivated the two Twitter employees and paid them for information. And we know that Asakar was 
doing his outreach to these Twitter employees at the same time that MBS was rising in sort of prominence in Saudi Arabia. In January 2015, his father became king of Saudi Arabia, and he was elevated to defense minister. And at that point in time, in January of 2015, is also when Abu Amal, one of the defendants, really started to ramp up his access of looking at some of these dissidents' accounts. And later on that year, al-Zabara starts to become active. So all of this is going on at the same time. MBS's rise, Asakar's cultivating of these employees, and these employees peering into and digging into these accounts including of dissidents who were very prominent critics of the kingdom. One of them, Omar Abdulaziz, who is living in exile in Canada, became a close friend of Jamal Khashoggi, a columnist for the Washington Post, when he was killed in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul last year. The CIA has concluded that MBS likely ordered the killing of Khashoggi Khashoggi's murder really also shined a light on the degree to which this government in Riyadh, the lengths to which it would go to silence its critics. This case is concerning because it highlights the the, the difficulty, the issue of tech companies, major tech firms like Twitter and others, of their ability to protect the sensitive data of users, including dissidents, from repressive governments. Governments like Saudi Arabia that might want to use this information to track people. And all of that put together makes this whole issue so worrisome because of its government's apparent willingness to try to exploit these tech platforms to to get the information they need to track their critics and, and take action against them. Ellen Nakashima writes about national security for The Post. A spokesperson from Twitter says that the company restricts sensitive data to a limited group of trained and vetted employees. The embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington has not responded to a request for comment. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, our interview with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. A lot of voters won't make up their mind until the very last few days, but now's the time to make sure that there's no confusion about where I stand. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.